Well, we're going through Philippians on Wednesday night, so if you'll join me, please, in Philippians chapter 3. We're beginning a new chapter tonight, and we'll begin by reading verses 1 through 8. This is probably one of the the greatest chapters in the Bible. I know all the Bible is good, and you shouldn't say things like that, but I love this chapter. Philippians chapter 3, look with me in verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision, which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh. If any of the man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Yea, doubtless, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. Amen. Now, you're aware, I believe, that the Bible was not written in chapter and verse form. That was added for our benefit, that we could find passages easier. Aren't you glad? Could you imagine if we all brought our scrolls in here tonight and we had to find our location? We'd be embarrassed how little we know the Word of God. All right, we're not dropping the microphone tonight, sorry. Paul, at this point, likely had a penman. He most likely spoke the Word of God as somebody wrote it down for him due to his poor eyesight. You'll remember over in Galatians, he says, see what large letter I have written this. And so he usually had somebody to pin it down for him. And uh, when Paul did that, he wouldn't have said, okay, I want you to take down chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, so all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Now verse 2. What didn't go down that way. And so when I say that this chapter begins with... We understand that this is how it has been divided for our help, but it wasn't how Paul would have seen it, and those in those days wouldn't have seen it in its completed form that way. This chapter begins with, finally, my brethren. It would seem a natural place to end this letter, for we just saw at the end of chapter 2 that Paul was going to send Timothy and Epaphroditus to them. He was going to send Epaphroditus first, probably carrying the letter, And then send Timotheus, Timothy, once Paul knew what was to become of him, what was going to happen with his case. And and so, as Paul would do on occasion, he would write, finally, but then go on to write even more. Right? And so he does that here. And in fact, he'll go on to give us what amounts to 42.3 more percent. This is the kind of study you get here at Liberty, amen? You don't get this anywhere else. You're not getting this down in Mexico. Um, Okay, maybe you are. Uh, And so after saying finally, 42.3% more, he'll say finally again in Philippians 4.8 and then go on to write another 15 verses. You say, what's your point? The point is don't get mad at long-winded preachers. 
Amen. Remember in Acts chapter 20, after Paul had been preaching, they broke bread, he preached till midnight, Eutychus fell from the third loft, he died, Paul raised him up, and one would think, that's a pretty good indication, Paul, that it's time to break the meeting and go home. No, you know what they did? They broke more bread and he preached till the breaking of day. Wow! That's a long-winded preacher. He could give you a run for your money, brother. So don't get mad at long-winded preachers. So even though we read, finally, my brethren, we still have much more to go. Paul says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. And then in Philippians 4.4, he's going to say this even more emphatically by saying, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. I think we'll wait till we're in chapter 4 to really dig into this idea of rejoicing in the Lord. But I will say this, that this principle is enough to keep every believer in here busy until the Lord comes home. Just learning to rejoice in the Lord. A lot of people are struggling with that. I know those who claim to be saved, yet I've never heard them rejoice in the Lord. They're bitter towards God, angry at how life has turned out, and they seemingly have no joy in the Lord at all. You've heard it before, and it's true. Christians ought to be the most joyful people on earth. We should tell our face sometimes that we're saved. Amen? We ought to be a joy to be around. Now, as I said, we'll get into this more in the next chapter. But I do want us to understand tonight the context in which Paul uses this phrase, rejoice in the Lord. He first states that to write the same things to you, to me indeed is not grievous, but for you it is safe. In other words what Paul is about to give them will be a repeat of truths that he has already given them before. He gave them truth when he was there in person. He may have even written them again at some point. I don't know. But Paul lets them know that it's not a grievous thing for him to have to do this. In other words, it's not irking the Apostle Paul that he tells them the same thing again. It's it's not a burden to him to have to Keep teaching them the same thing that he has taught before. And I don't believe Paul here is upbraiding them like he might have to the Galatians or the Corinthians. But here to the Philippians, I believe he's just saying, look, uh, this isn't a burden for me and for you it is safe. It's, It's not a bad thing for me to do and it's not bad for you to hear it again. And I think he's just encouraging them on the the same truths and and repeating the same thing. He's just reminding them of truth. And he says, if you'll just keep getting the basic truth, it's going to keep you from failing. We learn from this that repetition in instruction is a positive method of learning. Being reminded of truths over and over again is something we all need and we all can benefit from. There were math facts that I hope we learned in grade school that we still know today. Five times six, bam. You just know it. I don't know if you memorized the multiplication table when you were in school, but I think we had to through the number 12, something like that. And you just know it. Some of you may not, but (laughs) it's something you learn. And it was repeated so much, it just got ingrained into your thinking and you just know it. There are truths that, are, that will never change. Two times two. It'll never change. It's always the same. And we learn these foundational truths because they've been hammered into us. And every time I remember advancing to another uh, level of math, you had to kind of go back and 
recover what you learned the year before because it was foundational to what you were going to build upon for that year. And finally, when I got to calculus, I said, this is enough, and I dropped it. Amen. Well, no students are in here, I don't think. We know our ABCs and our one, two, threes. Because back there in kindergarten, somebody just kept telling us over and over again. I was told repeatedly as a child to say, yes, sir, no, sir. Yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. I don't have to tell you what happened when I didn't. But let's just say that the, the uh, repetition was beaten into me. Amen. And it's just what you say. I say now even to poor little Breck here. Yes, sir. How many of you were told over and over again as a child, don't interrupt? Wait your turn. Don't interrupt. I remember being told many times, do not ask me if you can spend the night with somebody in front of that person. I had to learn that one the hard way. We all learn foundational truths through repetition. Likewise, we have learned certain biblical truths certain Bible doctrines through repetition. Someone has said that repetition is theological mucilage. For those of us who grew up in church, we learned Jesus died for our sins at a very young age before we even really understood the depth of that truth. I could ask you tonight, what is the gospel? And, and many of you would say it's the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. We know it to rattle off because we've been taught it. It's been hammered into us. I could ask those who have been in a church like this for any length of time, how are we saved? And you would state through faith in Christ alone, not of works, lest any man should boast. You've heard it over and over again. Of course, the danger is that you only end up with a head knowledge and not a heart knowledge. And that's why dealing with children in our stripe of churches can be difficult because they just know what to say. Of course, nobody can see the heart. But it all does begin in the head before it moves to the heart. So I think that's okay. I think it's okay to have a little five-year-old recite certain things. One day it's going to hit their heart, I believe. My parents tried to get some truths about life into my thick skull growing up when I lived at home, and I could recite them to you. But it wasn't until at the age of 17 I moved out, I joined the service, and the light bulb came on. And all of a sudden, mom and dad's teaching through the years that they tried to get me to understand and finally made sense. I still had a long way to go, but it was beginning to sink in. I even wrote my dad a letter, I think, after day one when I saw these poor saps crying at Air Force basic training. <laughs> uh, we won't go there. Spiritually, we know many of our doctrinal truths through repetition. That's a good thing. We should never grow tired of hearing them. Amen. One of my favorite hymn writers is Philip P. Bliss. And he wrote a hymn entitled, Wonderful Words of Life. And in the first verse we read, Sing them over again to me. Wonderful words of life. Let me more of their beauty see. Wonderful words of life. Words of life and beauty teach me faith and duty. He understood the value of repetition. I like that old song, The Old Story Will Never Grow Old. The chorus reads, Oh no, the old story will never grow old, how Jesus died to save my soul. Oh no, the old story will never grow old, that story will never grow old. Do you get the point? The last verse reads, Many years have passed by since I found the Lord. I remember that night when the story was told. Time has no hold on the message it brings. That story is old, but it still blesses me. 
Don't grow tired of those truths. When it comes to spiritual things, I dislike hearing people say things like, I've heard all that before. People say, I've read the Bible before. Well, then I assume you've got it all figured out then. I would tell you that's great. I'm glad that you have heard that truth before. I'm glad that you've read your Bible before. Now let it change your life to where you practice what it says. Learn to live it out. Hear it over and over again. Hear it more, read it more. Keep it to stay right. Since truth never changes, you'll hear things more than once. But it's necessary for learning and practice. There's nothing new under the sun. Let your eyes glance down here at verse 18. Paul says, Of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping. So he says, look, I've I've told you before, I'm telling you again. He's going to keep repeating these things. Never grow tired of giving truth. Never grow tired of receiving truth. To the Galatians, Paul wrote, Of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past. Here's the problem. The problem isn't that we hear truth over and over again. The problem is when we feel like we need something new. Here's what some people will say. Boy, I really like that message. I never heard that before. And so now there's this desire, I've got to keep hearing something new. And that can lead into false teaching. Because somebody now is pressured to constantly try to impress you with something they have learned that seemingly nobody else in history has ever learned. (laughs) That can be dangerous, amen. Listen, the Bible says, meddle not with them that are given to change. God and His Word never change. Don't seek to change. Psalm 19, verses 1 through 3. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth His handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech. Night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. The message of creation has been preached since creation, and guess what? For the last 6,000 years, it's been preaching the exact same message. Don't grow tired of the message of God. We don't need a new message. But we need to keep hearing the same message over and over. We don't need a new Word of God, but we need to keep reading the same passages. We don't have to seek for new meanings. We don't need to add to or take away, but we just keep reciting the same truths, the same message over and over again. As Paul was nearing death, he was writing to Timothy over there in 2 Timothy. And he said in chapter 4 and in verse 13, When thou comest, bring with thee the books, but especially the parchments. Most believe that when Paul said he wanted the parchments, it's referring to the Word of God that he had. And at the end of Paul's life, I bring this up to say this, at the end of his life, he's not looking for something new, but he says, bring me those parchments. Bring me what I I know. Bring me the Word of God. Bring me that which can feed me still. Listen, we have a living Word of God. It'll teach you new. Amen. You'll read something that you didn't get, you read it again, and your eyes are open to something you didn't see the first time. It hits you where you need it. Amen? Not new in that you've got this revelation nobody else had, but for you, you read that and go, that's exactly what I needed. Why didn't I get that the first time? I don't know, but God knew you needed it then. It's a living Word of God. It helps you as you go. you got to stay in it. you got to be faithful. And notice here the message that Paul is giving the Philippians over and over again. And it was, if it was for them, you can bet it's for us today as well. Look at, the, look at verse 2. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision. Three times we're told to beware. 
We're to be on guard. We're to be on the lookout. We're to take heed to not allow these to come into our midst. Beware of dogs, evil workers, and the concision. When you read of dogs in the Bible, don't think of your little house pet. This isn't talking about domesticated dogs, but these are akin to what we used to call junkyard dogs. Bite your face off. Amen. Boy, that went over good, didn't it? Um, Dogs that are ready to bite and tear and devour you. We're talking about feral dogs. Spiritually, dogs in the Bible are sometimes likened to the enemies of God. In Psalm 22, it's speaking of Jesus' crucifixion, and the Bible says, For dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. They're likened to dogs. Isaiah 56, 10 and 11, His watchmen are blind. They are all ignorant. They are all dumb dogs. They cannot bark, sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. Yea, they are greedy dogs, which can never have enough. And they are shepherds that cannot understand. They all look to their own way, everyone for his gain from his quarter. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 6, Give not that which is holy unto the dogs. The dogs here in our text are those who are against faith in Christ. They bark and they bite at the true professors of the gospel because they don't like the simple message of salvation through Christ alone. They're called here evil workers. The dogs are those who add to the finished works of Christ. This is the emphasis, so get this. You say, I know all this. You're going to hear it again. They're adding to salvation in Christ alone. These are those who say you need to keep some portion of the ceremonial law in order to be truly saved. The dogs are adding works to salvation. In context here, these dogs would have been the Judaizers of that day who held that you needed to be circumcised in order to be right with God and obtain a full salvation. It says beware of the concision. It speaks of those who cut. This physically meant cutting through circumcision. Matthew Henry wrote, quote, They contended for an abolished right, a mere insignificant cutting of the flesh. End quote. An abolished thing that they're fighting to. Something that's not necessary for salvation and they're fighting for it, telling you you're wrong if you don't adopt it. Amen. Proverbs 26.11 says, As a dog returneth to its vomit, so a fool returneth to his folly. These Judaizers in those days were as dogs returning to their own vomit. Isn't that a great picture? They were returning to their vomit in that Christ had already fulfilled the law. He's the end of the law to all that believe. But they were seeking a return to this particular part of the law as an indication of a person's salvation. Does that sound familiar to some groups today? You need to indicate to us that you are saved by speaking to us in an unknown tongue. It's the same thing. Adding to Christ's finished work on the cross. Not only is this a warning against the Judaizers of their day, but it metaphorically pictures for us in our day any group that tries to tell you that you need to add something to Christ's salvation. It cuts at the church. It it tears at the church. They're biting. They're barking. They're after our doctrine and they want to corrupt it through their false doctrine and pervert the simple faith in Christ alone. They want to add to it. Catholics will teach you need to have works to be saved. 
Jehovah's Witnesses will teach you need baptism to be saved. The Mormons will teach you got to go through their church to be saved. Beware of dogs. The Bible calls them evil workers. It's not my opinion. Beware of those that tell you now that you've um, made a profession in Christ, we're going to lay hands on you till you become so filled you begin to speak in some tongue. Do you hear what I'm saying? Listen, the Bible didn't play games with that stuff. We like to wink at it in this ecumenical movement where we say it's okay if we all share the same platform, is it? Is it okay if I go to some citywide prayer meeting so long as the Catholics, the Mormons, the JWs, and all the false doctrines are up there and we just pray alongside them? Listen, there's got to be a stand. There's got to be a stand for righteousness. We don't have to do it ugly. We don't have to be mean. We don't have to beat them upside the head. But we can stand for truth. And so beware of dogs. We've got to be on guard. Don't compromise the truths of God. Some will say, well, Paul sure didn't sound politically correct. Seems like harsh language, Paul. Listen, Paul wasn't concerned about how you felt. He had been beaten for his faith, have you? Listen, don't mess around when it comes to the correct way of salvation. And I believe Paul here is turning the table against those Judaizers as well by calling them dogs. In those days, the Pharisaical Jews referred to Gentiles as dogs. You remember when the Canaanite woman came to Jesus and she said, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. Jesus didn't answer her at first. So she came and she worshipped him saying, Lord, help me. You remember what Jesus said to her? It is not meat to take the children's bread and cast it to dogs. And she said, Truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from the master's table. And Jesus then said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. And now I believe what Paul's doing here is he's flipping that back around and saying, You know who the real dogs are? It is those who reject uh, the simple salvation in Christ alone. He takes it a step further in verse 3 by saying, We are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. We are the true believers in Christ alone referred to here as the circumcision. What does this mean? It means that we have been spiritually circumcised. Those in Christ are now God's covenant people through the new covenant which has been established through Jesus Christ and His blood. Circumcision was the Old Testament sign that a people had trusted that the promised seed would come. That there was a Messiah who would come one day to save. It was an outward sign of an inward faith. That's what it was supposed to picture. And God was always concerned about the spiritual Circumcision. This is an Old Testament principle. It's not just a New Testament. Listen to what God said in De- or the Bible says in Deuteronomy 10 16. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no more stiff necked. Deuteronomy 30 and verse 6. And the Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart and the heart of thy seed to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, that thou mayest live. Jeremiah 4 4. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Take away the foreskins of your heart. Ye men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire and burn that none can quench it because of the evil of your doings. And then finally, this last reference I'll give you, Jeremiah 9.26. Egypt and Judah and Edom and the children of Ammon and Moab and all that are in the utmost corners that dwell in the wilderness for all these nations are uncircumcised 
and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in the heart. They had the outward sign. Are you catching this? They came to church on Wednesday night. They came to prayer meeting. Something was wrong. Their hearts were not right. God wants your heart. He wants your heart. He isn't concerned about your outward show. Israel had the outward show of circumcision, but they lost the heart meaning. They had the promises of God. They had the covenants of God. But as they forsook God, God sent prophets to them telling them, you need to be circumcised in your heart. Romans 4, 11-13, speaking of Abraham, and he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had, yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that the righteousness, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also, and the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had being yet uncircumcised. For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Now what is that saying? In other words, this. Circumcision isn't what made Abraham righteous. Going through the motion didn't make him righteous. But Abraham's righteousness was imputed to him by God through faith in the promised seed of Christ to come pictured through the circumcision. Romans 2 verses 25 through 29. For circumcision verily profiteth... Listen, how does it profit? If thou keep the law. Well, none of us have done that successfully. But if thou be a breaker of the law, that'd be all of us in here tonight. Thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. Therefore, if the uncircumcision keep the righteousness of the law, shall not his circumcision be counted, his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? And shall not uncircumcision, which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, judge thee who by the letter in circumcision does transgress the law? Listen, for he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not the letter of the law, whose praise is not of men, but of God. What Paul has said there in Romans 2 is the same thing he's saying here in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 3. True believers are not those who add to the law, seeking to be righteous. But true believers are those who only trust in Christ alone. Colossians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. And ye are complete in Him. That's awesome right there. You're complete in Christ. That's enough. Which is the head of all principality and power. Listen. In whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. In putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. How about that? And so Paul says in Philippians 3.3, for we are the circumcision. Now what defines those who have been circumcised in heart? It is those which worship God in spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. 
And again, it's all about the spiritual, not the outward. Speaking to wives, Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 3 and 4, whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit which is in the sight of God of great price. It's not about the outward. You can go through all the right motions tonight, but are you circumcised in heart? So the question is, how's your heart tonight? How's your heart? How do you worship God? Where does your confidence lie? Has your heart been circumcised? Do you worship God in spirit? And is your confidence in Christ? Are you all about the outward show? While deep down you know things are not right between you and God. Jesus said to the woman at the well in John 4, 23 and 24, But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. So are you a true worshiper of God? Now, back to what I opened with. And that is the context here of rejoice in the Lord. After telling us to be aware of those who add to Christ's finished work, Paul says again in verse 3, Rejoice in Christ Jesus. But I want you to notice the last phrase here. What does it say? And have no confidence in the flesh. In verse 1, rejoice means to be cheerful. It means to be calmly happy. You're at rest. There's joy. Verse 3, the word rejoice means to boast in, to glory in. Be calmly happy in the Lord and boast in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because we have no confidence in the flesh. This is so good, amen. This is where we should be taking laps. We have no confidence in the flesh. You know why I can rejoice tonight? Not because of what I've done, but because of what He has done. Man, this is good stuff. True believers are those who rejoice in the Lord's salvation alone. We don't add to it. We don't take away from it. We're not carried about by every wind of doctrine. Because our faith is in Christ's finished work upon the cross and His shedding His blood for the remission of our sins, we can joyfully, calmly rejoice in the Lord and we can boast in what Christ has done for us. You see, I'm joyfully calm tonight in this area of salvation because it isn't up to me in my fleshly efforts. Hallelujah. I boast in Christ's salvation because I understand I could never save myself. (laughs) I boast in that. And and God has used the, the foolish things to confound the wisdom of the wise. It doesn't make sense by the foolishness of preaching to save them which believe. You're telling me all i got to do is put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation and I can be saved? That doesn't make sense. What do I have to do? I know in Christ I'm fully saved because He did it all. When He cried, it is finished on the cross, He meant it. You don't have to add to it. The veil in the temple was written twain from top to bottom signifying that the law had been fulfilled. You don't have to keep the ceremonial law. Amen. We don't have to bring sheep in here and sacrifice them. Aren't you glad? 
I cannot save myself by law or works of the flesh. And I can rejoice in this truth because I know I could never be good enough to save myself. But now I can rest in Christ and rejoice in Christ who died to save me knowing who I was and who I still am. What a blessing to know the Lord. What a joy to be in Christ. Where are you at tonight? Are you saved? Do you have this kind of joy? Are you just calmly rejoicing and resting in the fact that Jesus paid it all? Can you boast in the fact that He saved you because He's good? As we study this chapter further, Paul is going to continue making this case. So rejoice in the Lord and beware of those who would seek to corrupt the simple teaching that's found in the Word of God. Amen? Pray with me.